Welcome back to the 55th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a piece talking about the future of universities here in America, the problem with teachers' unions not caring about parents and children, apparently, and an article talking about how COVID is ramping up again in China. And will the U.S. make any moves to restrict movement from that region? And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So as the overall population born within the United States, so not coming from overseas, different countries, actually born within the United States, is declining, as well of the portion of that population that is attending higher education is declining as well. Are colleges in for a shock? I mean, they've continued to increase the amount of faculty in some places, almost rivaling the amount of students actually going and attending the college. So will colleges be able to adapt, or will they see mass closings across the U.S. here in the future? I think it's an interesting conversation, and it's one that I've seen lots of speculation on for a few years now. I think I became fully aware of this issue in 2018, when I was looking at the demographics of by age in the United States. So, you know, it's not a new topic. But, of course, a lot of universities have made some changes that they think will bring in more people, different populations than they normally appeal to. So do you think that's had any effect? Or, like I said, do you think we're going to have mass closings? Or maybe there's a third option. Or maybe a fifth option. Whatever you think about this subject, throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear your opinions. All right, let's jump into our first article that comes from The Daily Signal. Are universities doomed? Oh, sensational headline, but it got my attention, so obviously it works a little bit. So ask anyone, anyone who has to pay back student debt, and they will tell you how broken the current system is. Not only can you not pay back, not not pay back, is what I meant to say, student loans, but tuition costs have only inflated over the past 30 years. When I have conversations with my parents or some of my friends' parents about how much they paid to go to school back in the day, I was like, wow, you guys had it good. And obviously, inflation plays a key role in that, but even then, the increase in tuition over those past 30 years greatly outpaces inflation. So it's one of those questions where it's, are they actually adding value? At the end of the day, most people will be willing to pay a little bit more money. They will be willing to spend the extra money if they can come out of college with a guarantee of getting a certain type of job with a certain salary or even if they don't come out with a certain salary, at least they feel like they gained something extremely valuable or valuable enough for the money they're paying to go to college. I mean, everybody knows that. that that's simple cost-benefit analysis. If you've taken one economics class, even if you've existed on this earth for more than 10 years, you probably have some understanding of, if I do something, it should be worth the cost. Now, 
of course, there are differing opinions on this. Some people say that college is one of the most informative places you can go. It will allow you to see alternative perspectives. It will allow you to grow as a person. And then others will say it's just an extra four years of partying, delaying your life and indoctrination. And neither, and let's be clear, I'm not saying that's for either political side, because at the end of the day, there are probably people that believe that on both sides of the aisle. But I think this article does a good job at breaking down some of the problems that a lot of people on the right see. Obviously, it's from the Daily Signal, so it has its biases, but I want to start with one quote and kind of examine it, and there's another quote towards the end that I want to get to. Quote, During the 1990s, culture wars universities were warned that their chronic tuition hikes above the rate of inflation were unsustainable. Their growing manipulation of blanket federal student loan grants and part-time faculty and graduate teaching assistants always was suicidal. Left-wing indoctrination, administrative bloat, obsession with racial preferences, arcane and jargon-filled research, and campus-wide intolerance of diverse thought shortchanged students, further alienating the public and often enraging alumni. Over the last 30 years, enrollment in the humanities and history crashed. So did tenure-track faculty positions. Some $1.7 trillion in federally-backed student loans have only green-lighted inflation to inflated tuition and masked contagion of the political indoctrination and watered-down courses, end quote. So someone, as someone in college, is there indoctrination going on? And I would say, at the end of the day, there are professors who have their biases, they have their agenda, they have their beliefs, and they want you to think a certain way. They are very far and few between. There are a lot of professors who have their agenda, they're willing to listen to your side, and even if they disagree with you, you can get along with them just fine. Now you're not going to get any of the special, oh, come over to my office for the extra hour and have a conversation with me, sit down with me, grow with me, and allow me to see you as more than just a student, but a person I can get along with, have a conversation with. But at the end of the day, they're not going to shudder you. They're not going to hurt you. They're not going to say that you can't get an A in my class because of your certain beliefs. There are some professors who, though they do not outright say that, they do say that the way they approach it, their thought process is correct, and therefore the correct answer, the only way to get the A, is to have the same belief as them, or at least a similar belief with good argument and justification behind it. Like I said, they are far and few between. But at the end of the day, if you even look beyond the teachers, most of the books that I have been assigned most definitely have a bias. If a person who was 80 years old, who has been a conservative their whole life, read these books or compare them to the books that maybe they used when they went to college, they most definitely could see the lean in one direction rather than the other. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, or at least... In the example I gave, the culture has changed since that 80-year-old person, maybe even a 50-year-old person, went to college. So, of course, if you're referencing or comparing to how society was when they went to college, it is different. But at the end of the day, there are certain ideas that are stated as completely factual, as in there is no argument whatsoever to them, 
that don't necessarily hold up. And what I mean by that is at the end of the day, it's more of an opinion being stated as a fact when it comes to certain, I'll give an example, with certain business practices. They offer in one of my books from two years ago in a management class, they offered the position that ensuring that things are a little bit more decentralized, you give a little bit more work to your employees, you burden them with a little bit more, but in doing so, you allow them to have a little bit more freedom over their own schedule, how they want to approach things, and therefore they'll work harder. And while there is empirical evidence that proves this, I did a essay that goes against that thought process, which at the end of the day, having a more centralized command structure, as I've pointed out in a podcast before, allows for a company to quickly respond to changing market conditions. Having a centralized vision allows them to get through hard times sometimes. And that is also borne out by empirical evidence. So when the book states it as a fact, it's more that it is based in evidence. It has empirical evidence behind it, but that doesn't mean that it is the only, or as the book was pointing out, the best way to go about running a business. So I think things like that, I'm not saying it's indoctrination. I'm saying that every single person who writes a book, every single college that uses certain books, they all have liens, they all have values, they have teachers that want to reinforce how they've done business in the world in the world how they've interacted with the world in the case of sociology sociology professors want to enforce their worldview so they find books that enforce their worldview i'm not saying that's a bad thing but that is the case that is how the world works or at least college works nowadays it is very hard for anybody nowadays to be truly objective and pull away i've only had maybe three or four professors, most of them in the business department, who are truly objective on a lot of the conversations that come up that aren't just pure, hey, let's talk about math, let's talk about this accounting practice, let's talk about this economic formula. When it comes to things that could be opinion-based, I've only had a few professors who are 100% objective. They're not subjective, or at least they try to remove their feelings from it whatsoever. So... At the end of the day, what I'm getting at here is, no, there's not deep indoctrination. It's not the university saying, yes, we will indoctrinate your children. We will turn them to our side. But the people that tend to get hired at those universities are people that got degrees in administrative issues, in social justice issues, and then they have to go work at those universities because that's the only place that they're currently relevant. So, of course, at the end of the day, there's going to be a slow shift in the overtime window to a certain side of the aisle. So I want to point out some numbers that the article brings up. From 2021 to 2022, the number of undergrad students enrolled nationwide dropped by 650,000. And over the past 10 years, enrollment has dropped 14%. But the real question that we need to get at here is why? Do young adults not see the value in attending college anymore? Are they doing that cost-benefit analysis? I was speaking out at the beginning saying, oh, no, 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 this isn't worth my time anymore. Is it too expensive and that's part of their cost-benefit analysis? Or do they look at other options? They look at trade schools. They look at the fact that you can start up a company online if you are so inclined. You could start a podcast. Oh, 
look at that. Then again, I am going to college. I see value in it. But if you wanted to, you could start up a podcast. You could start up a YouTube channel. There are lots of alternative ways of making money in this economy. And at the end of the day, some people may not even have wanted to go to college in the first place. They just may have been part of a certain population that would have been pressured into going by their parents. But now they see an alternative way forward. So there are lots of reasons why, and not to mention the shrinking population or segment of the population that is college eligible. So not only are colleges losing students, but the author also argues that they are unwisely using their money. So just one quick statistic or note that they have here, but the number of students was listed as 1693 at Stanford University. But it also lists 15,750 administrative staff. That is a nearly one-to-one figure. So basically, they have 1,200 and so less administrators than students. That's still insane. Or sorry, newly enrolled students in Stanford. That's insane. The staff almost could be an entirely new class at Stanford. How do they justify doing this? Well, of course, there have been plenty of new job opportunities, new positions made as times have changed, but they haven't really called the herd. They haven't made new positions and adapted some of the old things that older positions have to do. It becomes a bureaucracy. It becomes bloated. Over time, these universities just keep hiring. They keep coming up with new jobs while not consolidating old ones, cutting old ones that aren't necessary. So at the end of the day, it becomes extremely, extremely bloated. And then they pass those costs for those new employees on to the students. And as long as they have a student debt program sponsored by the federal government where you cannot, I repeat, you cannot go bankrupt and get out of your loans. There's no way to worm out of your student loans. You will be paying them forever. Then, of course, they're going to keep bloating and making more positions and just keep raising the price because at the end of the day, there's no consequence. There's no consequence to making all these new positions, spending all this money unwisely. If you know at the end of the day, people can't get out of their loans and they're going to have to pay you anyway. So are colleges doomed? That's the question we're getting at here. I went on a bit of a rant towards the middle there, but I would say yes and no. If they go forward, they adapt, they cut positions that are unnecessary, they retune who they're trying to appeal to, and maybe have a few more programs in place to help out those less fortunate, the population that is less able normally to go to college, I think they could see their numbers rise. Because as the people at the bottom of the economic ladder As they first go to college, their kids are more likely to then go to college. So they can kind of have a perpetuating loop at the end of the day. So I think there is a way forward. Even though the population, U.S. population born in the U.S. is shrinking, I think there is a way forward. They're going to have to consolidate, they're going to have to cut money, and they're going to have to make it more affordable. But we'll see if they're able to do that. All right, let's jump into our second article, also from the Daily Signal. For teachers' unions, parents and children come last. Quote, schools in Rochester School District in Michigan include in their curriculum a course called, quote, History of Ethics and Gender Studies, end quote. If my children were attending school there, I would wonder why this is in the curriculum as part of a K-12 education that is taught. 
One mother, Carol Beth Lequiti, I'm sorry if I butchered her name, I probably will do it again, wondered enough that she went to the school and asked for details about what will be conveyed to her child in this program. The response she got from the school amounted to, quote, sorry, none of your business, end quote. So let's start by asking a question. This is a very brief example, but if you were a parent in this situation, what would your response be? And I'll give you a second to say it out loud because I know sometimes I talk to podcasts. I'll tell you what I would do personally, which is I would do my darndest to get that school board to disclose what my child is being taught in schools. And a lot of people have talked about this issue in the last few years. And for all these parents know, they could be being taught that their family structure is irrelevant, that their parents are out to get them, that they're not affirming whatever beliefs they may have, they're not the right support structure. I'm not saying that's actually happening, but for all these parents know, that could be what is being taught to their kid. So I feel like they have every right to have an understanding of what their kid's being taught. And and Carol has turned to a legal remedy, suing the school. She's arguing that as a public institution, she should be able to, or the law firm that she hired, should be able to use the Freedom of Information Act to make the school system tell her and other parents what their children are being taught. Quote, now the Oakland County Circuit Court has ruled supporting the school district's claim that because teachers belong to a teacher's union, they are not public employees subject to the FOIA. Maniac will appeal this absurd ruling, but let's forget the legalities for a moment and just consider the outrageous reality being perpetuated against America's parents and children by public school bureaucracies and teachers' unions, end quote. And for a little context, Mackinac, sorry, I said Maniac, Mackinac is the law firm that, or the law group that Miss Carroll has gone to and tried to come against the school systems and pursue a case where she is suing them. And as I said earlier, the FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act, which, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's an interesting way to go about getting this information. I don't, I'm not a lawyer. So at the end of the day, I don't know if there's any backing, any good legal reason behind it. Obviously, the people at Mackey and Act thought there was good legal reasoning behind it, that at the end of the day, it's a public institution, so we should be able to ask what's being taught our kids and request that this information is put out there and not concealed. But this is a very hotly, hotly debated topic over the last years. I mean, one, it actually helped aid, if not cement, Glenn Youngkin's win in, for the governor's race in Virginia. And parents kind of became a voting block during that election. So obviously it's, a, it's an issue that a lot of parents care about. So parents are really tired of being forced out of their child's educations. And, you know, there is always a counterpoint at the end of the day, which is, well, if you don't like what the teachers are teaching, if you don't like the public school system, then 
you should teach your kids yourself. You should take them out. You should go do homeschool. And that's always a counterpoint that's brought up by people who oppose these parents becoming so involved or combating them from becoming so involved in what's happening in their kids' schools. And I think there are two counterpoints to that counterargument, which, of course, the one you've always heard is that's extremely hard to do. One parent probably has to leave their job. They have to go in, re-educate themselves. They have to start from the very beginning, ensure that they're teaching their kids properly. But also, I think one that kind of gets overlooked is homeschooling can be, not always. I know some homeschool kids who go to college with it currently, and I know some homeschool kids that did amazing on the SATs, but as colleges rely less on SAT scores, uh, it could actually be disadvantageous for children who want to go to a prestigious college. It could be that there's no academic backing, that they can't guarantee that their parents are teaching at the proper level, the level that is needed in some of these subjects, and therefore they might not get into these prestigious universities. And then you have to ask, well, then if a lot of people are transferring to homeschool, should there be a knowledge test that goes along with the application that you use to apply to some of these colleges? And then you get into means testing, and it starts becoming a very downhill conversation if you really take it to its extremes. So at the end of the day, what's the easier solution? Tell parents what their kids are learning and ensure that the parents have a voice. If they don't like what their kids are being taught in that public school district, maybe they can move to a different one. Or force a large majority of parents who don't agree with what's going on in schools to start homeschooling their kids and possibly put a lot of them at a disadvantage. It's a, it's a tricky one, and I don't necessarily think that people should be forced to put their kids in homeschool just to ensure that they're not getting taught things that are counterproductive or at least not necessary in K-12. through Now, if you want to talk about these racial and gender issues when you want to get to college, sure. At that point, you're expanding your horizons. You're questioning the current setup and layout of society. You are asking bigger questions, not just what's five plus five, not just what was on the Constitution. Rather than just straight fact-based questions, you're asking those bigger questions that you have to really look at your value system. You have to look at what you've been taught throughout your life, the moral opinion that you have of our society, so on and so forth, these sorts of issues. And then you start discussing them and expand your worldview in that sense. That's what colleges are supposed to be for. And I think if you want to have those conversations on a college campus with people who are developed and have a base understanding, rather than teaching it to kindergartners who don't even know half of the issues you're talking about, then I think that would be acceptable. But parents at this point are being forced to take action. And it is sad that at the end of the day, they have to do this much just to learn what their kids are doing in their schools. But as the author points out, and even the headlines talks about the unions, and I did kind of skip over that a little bit because I think there's a more important question at the end of the day. I think there's one that talks more to values rather than just hating on school and teachers unions, but there is one quote that I want to bring up here that the author used 
Quote, the AFT press release included praise for newly passed federal legislation codifying protections for same-sex marriage marriage, and praise for President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness initiative. What does this stuff have to do with improving pay, benefits, and working conditions? The PAC political contributions of the AFT were the 16th highest in spending in the nation in 2021 and 2022, or sorry, through the 2021 and 2022 cycle, making about $2 million in campaign contributions to candidates. Percentages of contributions to Democrats, 100%. Percentage of contributions to Republicans, 0%. Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal reports, AFT shaped the guidelines used by the Center's Disease Control and Prevention to slow the full reopening of schools, end quote. And why I bring all this up, you may be asking, why, why does any of this actually matter? The authors just try to demonstrate that unions, just like any other organization throughout the United States, has its lean. And at the end of the day, if it is dominated by one political ideology, then That is not good. At the end of the day, if all the teacher unions members, a majority of the teacher union, the teachers out there, not all of them, and even some members aren't necessarily Democrats. They just like the benefits that come along with being in the union. But if the union hierarchy is all Democratic and they're only supporting Democratic initiatives, then at the end of the day, Conservative parents are not going to like where that school district is going. They're not going to like what's being taught or proposed to being taught. And the same thing would go if these unions were conservative, though it goes against a lot of the core tenets of classical conservative beliefs. If these unions were 100% donating to Republicans, if they were conservative in nature, nation, nature, then of course Democratic parents would not be okay with what's being taught in their schools. So I'm not trying to call them out and say, oh, the unions are in the bag for the left, because we already know that, and that's not the key issue. The key issue is that they're in the bag for the left, but they can't put aside their politics. They can't say, we need to raise these kids. We need to educate these kids, not raise them, because that's the parents' job. We need to educate these kids in as non-biased of a way as possible so they can make up their mind in the future rather than saying, well, we have these certain agenda items that we like, that we agree with, and we should probably teach them in schools so that we have more union members in the future, so on and so forth. All right, that is enough ranting on that issue. Let's jump to something international before we quickly jump to our daily delight. BBC, China covid U.S. considers restrictions on Chinese arrivals. So as China has decided to backstep on its zero-COVID policy, or as they put it, relieve some of the tension, there have been a growing number of cases, not to mention the ones that have not been reported by the central government. Quote, the true toll of daily cases and deaths in China is unknown because officials have stopped releasing the necessary data. Reports say hospitals are overwhelmed and elderly people are dying. Last week, Beijing reported about 4,000 new COVID infections each day and few deaths. Before the relaxation of travel rules, people were strongly discouraged from traveling abroad. The scale of outbound group and package travel was banned, according to marketing solutions company Dragon Trail International. 
within half an hour of Monday's notice that China's borders would reopen. Data from travel site tripco.com stated cited in Chinese media showed searches for popular destinations had increased tenfold last year, end quote. And with China finally reopening, many citizens are very eager to get out of the country for the first time. Some of the, the author points out, some of the main popular destinations that are being thought of are Japan, Hong Kong, Thailand, South Korea. And though America does not appear on that list, many officials are still considering whether or not it would be important, whether or not it be prudent to have some restrictions in place to ensure that the growing number of cases in China doesn't actually spill over into the United States. Quote, American officials say this is due to a lack of transparency surrounding the virus in China as cases surge. On Wednesday, Italy announced plans to enforce mandatory testing after tighter measures were outlined by Japan, Malaysia, Taiwan, and India. The U.S. still requires international travelers to show proof of being fully vaccinated against COVID on entering the country. The website for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention also recommends that anyone traveling to the U.S. get a COVID test beforehand and has their test result on hand, but this is not a legal obligation. In their statement, the unnamed U.S. officials added that they were, quote, following the science and advice of public health experts and, quote, consulting with partners, end quote. China's loosening of the travel measures, the last part of the country's controversial zero-COVID policy, follows weeks of unrest, which saw people take to the streets in rare protests against President Xi Jinping and his government. And to be honest, I think that, you know, maybe there is a little bit of a reason to ease restrictions just a little bit and allow some of these Chinese citizens to travel here and get a small taste of true freedom. And while I'm, I'm mostly joking, there would be some that come here and realize the flaws in the Chinese system. And at the end of the day, I do not think we should open our borders to thousands of Chinese people because at the end of the day, a lot of them could be CCP operatives. They could be carrying COVID. There are a million reasons. But maybe there are a few who come here absolutely love America and they go back and they say, hey, guys, America's not as bad as they said it was. So there's lots of different coins to this one. I think that this is something you should keep your eye out for, considering there are a lot of cases going on in China right now. And if they're easing restrictions, we may see a small uptick here in the future. Just keep your eyes out and don't be too scared when it comes through. Be cautious, be smart, consult with your doctor, so on and so forth. All right. With all that out of the way, I know that last one was a quick one, right? Normally, my international statements are a bit longer. Let's jump to the Daily Delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. A German shepherd is extremely fond of a pygmy goat and treats it like a pup. So dogs always find a way to make new friends, from horses to goats. Quote, a pygmy goat from one household also has its own source of joy and warmth because of a German shepherd named Shadow. The loving canine grew fond of the pygmy goat and treated it like her pup. And why wouldn't she? If this little guy was, I mean, actually he is one of the cutest things that I have ever seen online, especially recently. Quote, you can see how happy Shadow is with the baby goat by her side. It's evident in how she smiles with her eyes and how she wags her tail. 
Shadow is pretty proud of being the baby goat's fur mommy, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or any of the videos or read any of today's articles, they will all be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there, you can also find the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip. Try to post something every once in a while and the links to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. All right. Besides that, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.